Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, and this is the latest episode of the Remnant Podcast. Thanks to everybody who has subscribed, downloaded, commented, tweeted, faxed, texted, semaphored, smoke signaled, and all of the rest. Um, we really appreciate it. Again, if you can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast, or this, that, or the other thing, Google Play, um, that would be great. It would be great for all the obvious reasons. It would be great in terms of our ad revenue possibilities. It would be great in terms of getting this podcast out there. It would be great in terms of the schadenfreude it would elicit in the sadness of John Pedortz and other podcasters who um, we can still see in our rearview mirror um, for the time being. But if you don't like this show, uh, by all means, don't leave a review, but still subscribe. In fact, if you like own some sort of semi-slave labor computer farm, Bitcoin-like uh, farm thing in Asia, and you can have everybody subscribe simultaneously to this podcast, that would be fine with me. Um, they don't necessarily have to listen to it. Um, just, you know, if, if you have different devices in your house, subscribe on all of them. I don't know how that works, but I don't care. Um, this will really make John think uh, or lend credence to his suspicions that robots are your subscribers. It's possible, but I don't care. Um, let let John seem like the paranoid one. <laughs> so uh, we're going to do something special today. or I, I don't know if it's going to be special, but we're going to try it out. I mentioned before that in part from popular demand, in part because there's just, you know, only so much punditry I can keep inside that we're going to sporadically and maybe regularly do like one uh, rank punditry podcast a week or every other week or something like that. We haven't figured any of this stuff out yet along with the normal ones. And since this Friday, we have a very exciting podcast that we're recording. We've got Charles Murray and Stephen Hayward. We're going to do a sort of live or sort of live special podcast where we just give life guidance and advice to young people. And um, how's that going, Jack? Oh, there's going to be young people. Don't worry. I've, I've scraped them off the, the gutters throughout the city. No, it's just going to be some of my uh, AI coworkers and peers asking you questions on what to do with our sad, lonely, miserable lives. So basically you just dragged a copy of The Road to Serfdom through AI and whoever followed it. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a surprisingly effective method. Okay. Yeah, so it's not quite open. It's not, well, when I say it's not quite, it's not open to the public because we decided to do this at the last minute and the event people at AI um, were not thrilled with the idea of all of a sudden late on a Friday having to get all of the bells and whistles together on, uh, at a moment's notice. But we are going to have young people asking, you know, all of the pertinent questions that young people ask. You know, why is the sky blue? Um, you know, why can't everybody have froth on their lattes? I mean, I don't know. What do you people ask? How, how young do you think these people are? <laughs> I don't know. Um, are you ready for a steady stream of whys from the, the four-year-olds who will be in attendance? Uh, well, you know, I, I, I have a daughter who asks me random why questions all the time. I actually, as an aside, I really enjoy that sort of conversation with toddlers because I think it's the Socratic potential of it is just infinite. And if you if you are if you are patient enough, you can have a sort of very entertaining time. I mean, after all, Plato believed that we had all of the knowledge in our heads already. It just needed to be reasoned out of us. Yes, but 
but Plato was wrong. Um, you know, and, whoa, whoa, hot take. <laughs> Plato's wrong about a lot of things, and you know, one of the reasons why we're doing so. Steve Hayward was the one who had this idea a long time ago to do this youth podcast thing, and then in the last couple of weeks, I've been writing a lot about youth stuff, and he was like, you know, given last week's G file, uh, you know, we should really sort of get this thing out there, and I was like, okay, that's fine. But this idea that, um, you know, when you say you like. I like those kinds of conversations with little kids too, mostly because they're adorable, not because I think that if I use the right perfect combinations of, of words and symbols, I will unclick some level and all of a sudden, you know, the next Kwisatz Haderach um, will come forth from it. Yeah, or, or to use another sci-fi reference, uh, in Childhood's End, when the, the child is like seeing through space and the overlords are taking notes because they've never been to these places before. I, I haven't read that one, but that's, that's oh. similar. Yeah. Um, you know, that's the whole point. I mean, this is the thing is like, you know, Hillary Clinton once said, actually once said, she wrote in a book, like smart people looked at the sentence and said, <laughs> yeah, that checks out. That some of the some of the best theologians she ever met were five-year-olds. Now, that's really stupid. <laughs> even if, I guess. Another hot take. <laughs> even accounting for... The spirit of what she was saying. It's really stupid. But we have this, I think we're hardwired with it or it's common in every culture um, to think that children, because they sort of are like, because they are visitors from Mars in a sense, right? Kids are born into this world. As you know, one of my favorite lines is from Hannah Arendt about how every generation is invaded by barbarians. We call them children. Kids come into this world only with their factory preset wiring. And so when they run up into the pieties and social conventions of a normal society, they sometimes ask really good questions because they're stupid. <laughs> and stupid – there's actually an enormous amount of social science stuff about this, that stupid people make groups smarter than all smart groups. Um, I've written about this a bunch of times. It has to do with the, sort of the nature of, of groupthink, right? If you get a bunch of crazy smart engineers in a room – um, who have all gone to the right schools and studied all the right stuff and grew up in the same institutions and they all think basically the same way about stuff, they sometimes just won't think outside of their cocoon. And then you bring in the friggin', I don't know, pizza delivery guy. And he says, hey, Wait, what kind of situation is this? It's not, it's not a Stormy Daniels script. I just, you know, maybe that's on my mind because I've been doing so much research. <laughs> but um, no, but uh, bring in someone just outside the field, whether they're dumb or ignorant or whatever. And they ask questions out of left field. And that process actually cre creates a better dynamic for coming up with smarter solutions for things. And the same thing can happen with kids where they just notice these weird connections between things because they're coming to the world with a fresh eye. And that can be a valuable thing. But we confuse it for wisdom. And so like with these park – you know, so like the story of the emperor has no clothes – you know, it worked out okay because it's a fable and it's about a mythological king who is, I guess, probably good-hearted but vain. And the kid says, you know, hey, he's not wearing any clothes. And all the other people who had reason to fear the king and were suck-ups, you know, had played along with this idea that he's wearing these beautiful clothes. The, the kid sees through the social conventions and the pieties and all the rest to tell the truth. That's great. If you did a similar star story with Kim Jong-un or Stalin, the kid and his family would be slaughtered, right? I mean, um, and it would be really stupid for the kid to say, hey, you know, the dear leader is actually really fat. <sighs> um, and 
so my problem is, is that people think that because sometimes, rarely, kids cut through a lot of the BS um, by making an observation that hadn't occurred to people who grew up in a sort of path-dependent track of sort of intellectual understanding, that we then think that, oh my gosh, they're actually smarter than us, they know more than us, and all of the rest. And then you factor in the sort of neo-romantic idea that is rampant across our culture, which says that passion is more important than arguments and that feelings are more important than facts, that's what young people bring to things, right? They bring passion and they bring enthusiasm. And old people who tend to be more lazy and more jaded and stuff and more nostalgic about their youth tend to be bowled over by this stuff as if it's really, really impressive. And it can be impressive. It can also be freaking terrifying. I mean, the fascist movements of Europe were all youth movements. The Futurists in Italy, which became the fascist, was explicitly a youth movement. It's in the Futurist Manifesto. The, the Nazi movements in Europe were all about youth. And this is not to say that youth politics is all Nazi-like, but what all of these youth movements share is this emphasis of passion over fact and this desire to sort of bully old people as if they don't know what they're talking about because young people's feelings are so much more intense. I just find it sort of insane. So anyway, we'll talk a little bit about all that, I guess, with the youngins, and I'll hector them about not taking any pride in being young. But this is not really where I plan to go, but your youth, it offends me. <laughs> Life is what happens while you're busy making other plans. Exactly. So... Uh, we're going to do some punditry. So first of all, as a, we're recording this at midday on Wednesday, the what's the date? The 14th, Pi Day. Pi Day. It's very exciting. Technically, Pi Day, I guess the square root of Pi Day should never end. But um, <laughs> um, Well, technically, there should never be a Pi Day because we haven't calculated all the digits yet. So we can never pinpoint exactly when it would be. So I don't know if you can get this into the show notes. And... The, all the digits of Pi? No, I cannot. No, 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 no. <laughs> It was a fascinating piece in The New Yorker 25, 30 years ago um, about these two Russian brothers, these mathematicians that everybody recognized were geniuses and but no one really knew what to do with them because they were kind of eccentric and they weren't great teachers and stuff. And I could be butchering this. Again, I read this in college. But one of their obsessions was they were just going to keep calculating pi to the end. You know, just keep, oh, there's an exit. Nope, we're going to keep going, you know. <laughs> and and they were up to, this is, I guess, before some of the supercomputers were doing all this stuff. But, like, they were competing with the Japanese and they get it to 1.6 million places and the other one gets it to 1.7 and blah, 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 blah. But one of the things I always remembered about it was the author was saying how if you graphically represent the digits of pi, the square root of pi, every now and then you just get these really funky presumably random patterns um and like there's some place at like the 800,000th place where it's just a bunch of sixes for a while you know <laughs> and, and and i just always kind of thought that was awesome because i think there's i think that there's a lot of metaphorical value in how you can't get to the end of the square root of pi because i don't want to get all mystical and stuff but um yeah darren aronofsky already did that in what in pi um, I guess he did, yeah. No, but I never saw that. Ties up the the, the digits of pi with uh, Jewish mysticism. Yeah, I, I stay away from Jewish mysticism, as should Madonna. But, <laughs> um, but I just think that one of the things I like about I, – I like mysteries in life. This is why I was against uh, The Curse of the Bambino ever ending. I like these sort of strange things in life and, and in part because I, I still think there's a vast amount of the universe. There's a vast amount of things that we don't know that we are sort of on the bubble of much larger thing. And 
um, the pie stuff is one of these things that sort of hints that we just can't figure out where the rest of the equation is and we can't measure everything that we know. But anyway, um, all I wanted to do was talk about freaking Pennsylvania 18. <laughs> no, I won't let you. <laughs> so Pennsylvania 18, I think, all right, we're putting on the rank punditry hat, uh, Jack butler who's the guy i've been talking to this entire time yeah apparently i got an email uh from the remnant pod gmail account that people don't know who i am which is appropriate because i'm not important so thanks for reminding them you know if we were going to do this all over again i think what we would probably do is just turn you into a disembodied voice of my own schizophrenia and then oh. that would have been better yeah, darn it. <laughs> oh, well. Missed opportunity. You know, and then when you when you finally go on to a new job, it would just be really weird that all of a sudden the voice of my, you know, unexpressed id changed. <laughs> yeah, or you you finally got that lobotomy. <laughs> um, or, I, or I started taking the meds. That keep okay, PA-18. Yeah, PA-18. All right, so, let's do this. Right now, out there in the real world, there are people screaming at the dashboard as they listen to this podcast saying, get to the point. So <laughs> uh, I think that... Um, News of or claims that this is horrible, horrible, no good, terrible news for the GOP are somewhat overdone. It is, let's put it this way, it's really bad news, but it is not the disastrous news that people are making it out to be for a few reasons. First of all, uh, Connor Lamb is kind of sui generis. I think kind of sui generis is a weird formulation when you think about it. And um, in in that, first of all, he was picked by the... Uh, basically by the smoke-filled rooms, right? Which is how I think we should go back to everything. I'm for smoke-filled rooms, qua smoke-filled rooms, but also metaphorically as places where political decisions are made. Um, and uh, so he's, he's he's weaselly pro-life, right? He's the Cuomo version of pro-life, which is to say that I personally think it's murder, but by no means am I going to vote in any way that stops other people from committing murder. But that's still a popular position among non-base Democrats, uh, it's certainly a right-wing position. He said he wasn't going to vote for Nancy Pelosi for speaker. He's pro-gun. He's military. He's culturally conservative. He knows the district. Um, he was a much better candidate than the Saccone guy. And I think those factors account for a big chunk of why he won, right? I mean, it has there. it was a plus 20 district, but... It is entirely possible that when a bunch of blue-collar blue collar Democrats vote for a Republican billionaire who they like because of the protectionism or they like because of his sort of culture war stuff, they may want to pull back and say, um, you know, maybe we should ha- – maybe Republicans shouldn't be running everything. You know, Saccone was a right-to-work guy. Uh, the – Republican agenda, which is the part of the Trump policy agenda that I like, right, the sort of Paul Ryan agenda, is not necessarily the blue-collar, you know, Western Pennsylvania agenda. And so it doesn't necessarily mean that all of his voters have turned on Trump if they vote for the Democrat, particularly when the Democrat isn't going to support Nancy Pelosi, is pro-gun, is a veteran, and all of these others, and says at least some of the right words on abortion. And so... I think at the same time, it's still bad for a couple reasons. One, the turnout from Democrats should really trouble Republicans, not just in this race, but in lots in the lots of the last races that we've seen over the last six months, because it's obvious that there's a lot more intensity among 
Democrats than there is among Republicans. Uh, Donald Trump has really alienated a lot of the true Republican base, which are, you know, suburban, affluent, married couples with kids. And the fact that Connor Lamb is, in fact, so outside of the Democratic mainstream, and yet Democrats turned out for him, should be a scary sign for some Republicans, right? I mean, presumably a lot of hardcore left-wing base people will be even more enthusiastic to turn out for other Democrats in, in another district, but they still turned out enough, to, at least apparently, to get this guy across the line. But the real problem is that in a wave election, and I don't have the numbers in front of me but because I don't have anything in front of me, but um, <laughs> in a wave election, Amy Walters has written a lot about this at the Cook Political Report. The seats that are most likely to flip in a midterm election, if there's a wave or anything that looks like a wave, actually, it's sort of autocatalytic. This conditions create the possibility for a wave are open seats. The power of incumbency is really, really still strong. Mm-hmm. And so incumbents tend to hold on to their seats even when there's a wave. But what happens is, is that the incumbents who think they are vulnerable or don't have it in them to raise all of the money or think that other people are going to lose, they tend to retire. And we've seen lots of Republican retirements. And in a midterm of a first term of a president's, uh, uh, you know, administration, open seats flip by an overwhelming margin to the party out of power. Right. So in this case, it would be the Democrats. So there are a lot of Republicans who look at this race and they say, my God, here's a guy whose district went by 1920 points for Donald Trump and he still lost, even though the GOP spent scads of money in this thing and in the heart of Trump country. And so what this could end up doing is launching another wave of Republican retirements. And those Republican retirements are far more likely to create open seats that then go the way of the Democrats. And I don't know that's going to happen. We've already seen a lot of retirements. We don't, we don't even need that many more. But even a few more, I think, could flip it, particularly when you just look at the historical trend, which is what, like 30 seats for the – 24. 24 seats for the party out of power. No, no. The GOP has a margin of 24. Oh, yeah. It's 23, actually. Okay, 23. Um, and so – and there's some at least anecdotal evidence that says that Trump's big rally for Saccone, it did help get out Republican voters, but it got, helped to get out a lot more Democratic voters because it reminded all the Democrats – who don't, don't like Donald Trump, why they don't like Donald Trump. You know, when he starts talking about death penalty for drug dealers and all of these other things, if you're inclined not to like Donald Trump, that rally blasted across, you know, Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania airways was probably bad for Saccone more than it was good because it boosted the turnout in the Pittsburgh suburbs and places that Lamb needed to get. Make sense? Yeah, I think so. Okay. I mean, this is the peril of nationalizing a race. Right. Well, that's, well, that's the thing. Is Lamb didn't nationalize the race. Lamb, actually, he comes from a family of Pennsylvania politicians in the state legislature. His, I think his father is some official now. And he knew the district. He fit the district. He wasn't like that John Ossoff guy who, like, seemed like he just walked right out of the Pajama Boy ad for Obamacare <laughs> and decided to run in a Republican district in Georgia. And he was a really bad fit for it. Back, again, during the early parts of the Trump administration when he was still much more popular with suburban Republicans. But Lamb fit the district and he was pro-gun and he he had ads with him holding guns and stuff. And so all the cultural issues that 
the Republicans might have tried to nationalize the use it to nationalize the race were snuffed out by Lamb, and and I thought you know and also the, one other point now that I'm just thinking out loud unlike before where I was so practiced and rehearsed <laughs> um, was at the end you know if, if you listen to Paul Ryan if you listen to a lot of these guys in the GOP sort of leadership they keep thinking and they had reason to believe it for a little while that campaigning on the the ta- on tax reform on the tax bill would counteract all the the baggage that Trump brings and there was a time when it looked like that might be the case because the popularity of of the tax cuts was gaining and there was a brief period where the um generic ba- ballot uh lead among the democrats was shrinking most of that is either stopped or reversed at this point and you could see how you know Sacone at first was trying to run on tax cuts and all the rest and that was not getting any traction and so he switched to the Democrats hate our guns and our Bibles, you know, and all of this stuff, trying to sort of be Trumpy. And I think that stuff works for the base, the, the Trump 30% that's already all in for Trump. But it is at best a mixed bag for suburbanite Republicans, college-educated Republicans who don't like, typically don't like cultural issue stuff. And I think Saccone was making this gamble that they could nationalize the race, they could sort of NRA, nra defy the race. And um, and that would boost the rural vote enough to counteract um, how badly Saccone was going to do in the Pittsburgh suburbs. And I just don't think it necessarily worked. And I think that that fact has got to be be a major factor in the calculations for other Republicans about how and if they're going to run again if they think that embracing Trump won't help or running on the tax reform stuff won't help. Anyway, one other major punditocracy thing that I just got to get off of my chest because, you know, I kind of you ever see the HBO special where Jerry Seinfeld had a special where he just he he did all of his old material one last time. Yeah, then he was putting it to rest. Yeah, and he actually had a coffin and he put all his jokes in the coffin or something like that. That's how I feel about Hillary Clinton. Ah, right? uh, so, yes. I've been writing about Hillary Clinton and the Clintons for a very long time, and. Longer than I've been alive, I, I think. What year were you born? 1993. No. Well, yes. Um, I guess I have been writing. Um, I think my, fir- my first piece about Bill Clinton was probably for a magazine that I don't know if it still exists for, uh, that was put out by the Ripon Forum. Um, and I just wanted the writing gig. And it's like the squishiest of squish Republican outfits or at least it used to be anyway but i wrote a piece about clinton's first budget for them in 1993 so or might have been 1994 i'm not sure so anyway for a while and um hillary clinton was in india where first of all she tripped a lot which and i don't mean like tripping.com or acid tripping i mean she was just like she fell down a lot apparently (laughs) um and um which i don't really care about one way or the other it's just it's so 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 symbolic of everything else that she did because it's so f- she she is leaning into the caricature of herself um, more than anybody I can remember and so she gives this <laughs> ranty talk you know uh, the last I checked it was what um, she had like seventeen excuses for why she didn't win from Russian meddling to uh, fake news and she had this whole list. she's now added the fact that the what was it that the less dynamic more racist 
uh, more sexist, more handmaiden's tail um, parts of the country didn't vote for her because they are all sort of either too dumb or too bigoted to understand what's good for them. And she went into some shocking detail about this. And I have a sort of ranty piece in the corner that I wrote about. I wrote about this yesterday because, you know, it was one of these classic examples of where you would think at the end of it she would just sort of go sort of pale and sweaty as she looked around and say, oh, oh my God, did I say that out loud? <laughs> um, because it was so ham-fisted and fit so – I mean it was like any, any normal Republican who, whether you voted for Trump or not, you just watch her talk about how, how arrogant she is about how dumb everybody and bigoted everybody is who didn't vote for her um, are. And you're like, I can't believe the Democrats nominated this person. I totally get why people voted for Trump. You know, my position back then was it was a choice between two crap sandwiches on different kinds of bread. And I just don't understand why she flew to India with just so much check baggage of crap sandwich. <laughs> and... And one of the things that really bothers me, in part because it ties into the stuff with the Black Panther that's been going on, we talked about this a little bit on the Glop podcast, she's in a foreign country talking about how backward our country is, you know, or at least the parts of the country that didn't vote for her. She says that uh, the married women who didn't vote for her, it's because they're too subservient to their husbands or their sons or their bosses or their brothers. I mean, she sort of lists every male in some woman's life and... You know, this is sort of classic jackass feminism, which basically says you're not a real woman unless you agree with the political agenda of the Democrats or the feminists or whoever, you know, whoever is defining the agenda at this moment. I mean, I'm, one of my favorite examples of this has always been, and I think I brought it up on here before, I think it was Wendy Doniger, I'm not sure, a professor at, in Chicago when Sarah Palin was nominated uh, to be vice president, she said, um, perhaps Sarah Palin's greatest hypocrisy is her pretense of even being a woman. You know, and this is a woman with several children. <laughs> um, we've seen picture. I mean, forget Andrew Sullivan's trig trutherism stuff. Um, sh- we've seen pictures of her pregnant. You know, and you know, and if we and one of the things I love about this this nonsense, I almost cursed as a digression because you know I haven't had any digressions till now. Uh, one of the things I love about this kind of thing. And there are lots of examples of this, you know, is of people saying that Republican woman this or conservative woman that isn't a real woman. We're supposed to take the word of men who say they're women, right? We're not supposed to second guess or gainsay anybody who says they're a woman regardless of, you know, their plumbing, right, or, or how they grew up or what it says or in the driver's license. It's, it's just simply take – you know, if you all of a sudden tell me that you're a woman – I am supposed to say, okay, you know, thank you for, you know, coming out and you're so brave and blah, 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 blah. But if women, <laughs> like literal, like textbook, biological sort of women say they're for tax cuts or gun rights or something, then we're allowed to say they're not really women. I mean, that is bat guano crazy stuff. And and so anyway, Hillary Clinton takes this position that um, any of the women who didn't vote for her or don't like her – they are basically not um, fully realized individuals. They lack agency. Um, they kowtow to the male figures in their lives. The Washington Post ran an absolutely absurd piece sort of trying to get Hillary Clinton's back on this. And all it did was quote a bunch of professors 
who repeated the same theory without any empirical evidence to back up what they were talking about. Maybe, maybe, I don't know, women who marry conservative men share their worldview. Maybe getting married makes people more conservative. Maybe uh, husbands actually agree with their wives rather than the other way around. Maybe women are just allowed to have their own opinions um, without, you know, violating some metaphysical notion of what it means to be a woman. I mean, it is such weak tea identity politics nonsense. But what particularly bothered me about it is she's in India talking about how backward America is and about how, you know, these women who didn't vote for her are backward and the men who didn't vote for her are backward because they don't want blacks to have rights, you know, because that's a major plank of the Republican platform is no more rights for black people. <laughs> Um, yeah, that was definitely in the 1860 Republican platform. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, and she does this just lame pandering to the audience where she says, you know, and maybe the Trump voters didn't like to see an Indian American succeed, you know, um, because, you know, she's in front of a bunch of Indians. So she's got to sort of throw that one in there. Mm. And the thing is, you know, I'm very pro-India. I've always wanted it strategically Culturally, I'm, I'm an Anglosphere guy, and I think they're, you know, as members of the Commonwealth, and they have um, uh, all sorts of, in their democracy, i am always been very pro-Indian. I've got Indian Americans in my family. i got Indian Americans I've worked with. I, I think Indian Americans are a wonderful bunch. I think India is a wonderful country, all the rest. But let's not kid ourselves. Any pathology that you want to list about America um, in terms of its quote-unquote backwardness India's got much bigger problems. You got riot, you know, you got mobs killing Muslims, um, Hindu mobs killing Muslims in in India, and you got Muslim mobs killing Hindu Muslim Hindus in in India. You have such, you have incredible pockets of sectarianism. You have uh, the Prime Minister of India who is openly embracing Hindu nationalism as the new conception of what it means to be an Indian, um, completely contrary to the sort of liberal tradition of Nehru and Gandhi. You've got, you know, there are still occasional episodes of wife burning. Now, it seems to me that wife burning on the great hierarchy of, of evils is somewhat, somewhat worse than voting in tandem with your husband in a presidential election. Another hot take. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and this sort of, and so I actually went, uh, our friend Marion Tupi, who runs this thing called humanprogress.org at the Cato Institute, fantastic website. I cited it the other day on the site. It has it has all the good news you can possibly stomach, and they, one of the charts they have, which I tried to print out, but you know that's just that was I guess technologically beyond my abilities. They list um, by country the countries that uh, of where there's available data of people who say they would not want to live next door to somebody of a different race or have somebody of a different race as a neighbor, and. India is somewhere in the I don't know, low thir- mid thirties, high forties on that number, and America is in single digits, like seven or eight or something like that. Uh, the racist, the most racist country country in the world that they have data for, at least, fun fact, Azerbaijan. Nobody hmm. wants to live next to somebody of a different race there. I don't know enough about Azerbaijan to give you a great explanation as to why, but interesting. It's like fifty eight percent of the people there would do not want to ever live or have, be in the same neighborhood as somebody of a different race. Huh. And the reason why I think this is important, I'm thinking about writing about this, is that the, you know, Seymour Martin Lipset used to say something like, if, if you don't understand two countries, you can't understand one country, because it's only by comparing two different countries that you can understand your own country. And, you know, and he picked Canada, which was at least really similar to America, which I'll take back if anybody holds me to it. But so many people are absolutely ignorant about 
other countries, that they think that racism, for example, is a uniquely American thing and a uniquely American problem, that America is the most racist country in the world. And people who say America is the most racist country in the world are incandescently ignorant of the rest of the world. They don't know what the rest of the world is about. They haven't paid attention. They haven't been there. They haven't read about it. They think America is this outlier bad place in the world when in reality the reason – and I understand where some of it comes from. One of the reasons why we think America is so racist is because the hypocrisy of slavery in a country dedicated to all men being created equal was so profound. But the hypocrisy wasn't – you know, first of all, we fought a civil war. We amended the Constitution a few times. You know, we've sort of we, – we fixed a lot of that. Meanwhile, you know, slavery existed on every continent and all that kind of stuff. But racism endures. I mean, we're not the least racist country in the world, but we are in the running. Uh, meanwhile, China, wildly racist. Uh, not only racist towards blacks, but racist towards the Uyghurs and other ethnic denominations. China is, in fact – a giant Jim Crow country where if you don't belong to the Han, if you're not a member of the Han Chinese, uh, very difficult to get a work permit, very difficult to get an internal passport to move. The the North Koreans, wildly racist. You know, lots of Asian races are racist. Lots of African nations have bigotries towards other tribes or other ethnicities. Um, I'm not trying to throw every other country under the bus, but my point is, is that if you if you only think you know about America and you have this naive, sophomoric, college, you know, sort of social justice woke assumption that says the rest of the world is better than us, then you're, you're, what you're likely to do is to inflate the importance of American racism and think it is much greater than it actually is. I mean, one guy on Twitter who responded to this tweet I had about how I thought it was fun. I always think it's funny when people discover how racist China is or other countries are. Some guy responded where he referred to China as a community of color. Now, <laughs> China is one of the most ancient nation states in all of human history. It, is, it was an empire. It was a polity. It, was, it is a country for sure. But this whole idea, because they are non-whites, they're going to call it a community of color, you know, which would make most Chinese people laugh their asses off. But it was a perfect example of how people just want to sort of assume that people outside of our own culture are more enlightened, better less benighted, less backwards and all of the rest. And for Hillary Clinton to go to India and crap on the backwardness of our country um, for cheap applause from, you know, uh, a bunch of rich Indians who um, probably would have real reservations about letting their children marry someone of too low a caste was really repugnant. But also hilarious because it so fits with, with Hillary Clinton because she's just such a bad politician. But anyway, I just worry that I'm going to run out of opportunities to talk about Hillary Clinton going into the future. No, I think I so it would be nice if we could stop talking about Hillary. Uh, but she just psychologically cannot let go of 2016 in a sort of weird mirror image version of the way Trump can't. And so she keeps reinserting herself into the public debate and giving you opportunities to make fun of her. Yeah, see, I guess that's the distinction I'm going to uphold. I'm never going to do or I'm going to try not to do sort of what about Hillary, right, to, to deflect from the stuff that Trump does. Because Hillary is irrelevant. The election's over. I cannot stand when people, you know, write these pieces about how, um, you know, we have to accept anything that Trump does because it's better than what Hillary would have done, right? I mean, 
this is a position that a lot of smart people on the right have convinced themselves as an intelligent position where they, you know, I was on a panel on NR Cruise where somebody said this, where they, you know, said, well, you know, so far, you know, it's been a mixed bag. But the one thing I say to myself every day, it's it's better than it would have been under Hillary. And that's probably true. I mean, I mean, some, I mean, some things would be would be much better under Hillary in terms of the chaos and all that kind of stuff. But policy-wise, things would be much worse under Hillary. I'm perfectly fine with with conceding that point. But never before in American history, as far as I'm aware, have at least conservatives said that we have to go along with whatever this president is doing because it's better than what his opponent in the last election would have done, right? <laughs> I never said, you know, with George W. Bush, well... You know, Harriet Myers is an awful pick for the Supreme Court, but she's better than what John Kerry would have appointed, right? I mean, that's a it's a nonsense answer. The election's over. But when Hillary Clinton, on her own, you know, climbs up the jackass tree and then f- trips down, hitting every branch on the way down, I think it's perfectly legitimate to point it out, you know? <laughs> and um, And so I think that's the standard I'm going to have. But, you know, another standard that I think is incredibly important is hygiene. <laughs> you like that? I that was a good segue. <laughs> and this week's episode of or I should say this episode of The Remnant because we're going to do another one on Friday. This episode of The Remnant is brought to you by our friends at the Dollar Shave Club. Dollar Shave Club look is one of these great sort of time-saving uh convenience products that actually you don't have to make a lot of sacrifices on quality. I um travel a lot. I'm getting ready for this huge book tour. And, you know, you get to these weird hotels where, you know, Jack now knows that I'm never allowed to be booked into a hotel that doesn't have a bar. Um, But sometimes I'm booked into a hotel that doesn't have a a razor blade um, or um, doesn't have shaving cream and all these kinds of things. And Dollar Shave Club is is this sort of great resource for my needs, which is just to have these things that I can just throw in a bag and always have around because they're as good as all the stuff that you would normally spend top dollar for. But they're packaged, they're marketed in a way that is super convenient, whether you're using them at home or on the road. So when I say Dollar Shave Club, if the first thing that pops into your your head is an amazing, affordable shave, I'm about to blow your mind. Here's the scoop. At dollarshaveclub.com, they deliver everything you need to look, feel, and smell, hugely important, your best. Dollar Shave Club is more than just razors. Dollar Shave Club is better than shopping in a store. Dollar Shave Club delivers to you everything you need to look, smell, and feel your best. Shampoo, body wash, toothpaste, and of course, the best razors I've ever used. I get an amazing high-quality shave every morning. Well, not every morning these days because I've got this beard. So I basically use it to trim the, the, the lower and upper parts of my beard these days. And, you know, on special occasions, my back. But... The best razors I've ever used. Um, I get an amazing high-quality shave every time I use it, particularly the executive razor. But the true hero of my morning routine is their Dr. Carver Shave Butter, which is great. I used to use all the time when I was shaving more more comprehensively. Um, but I still use on my neck and stuff because you can get those razor stub bubble things, bumps. It helps the razor gently glide across your skin. You have to experience it. Another must-have experience is how Dollar Shave Club delivers everything straight to you. That means no more trips to the store, wandering the aisles, hunting for razors, shampoo, toothpaste, than having to pay at the cashier, scanning and bagging your own stuff. So here it is. 
For a mind-blowing experience, do- join Dollar Shave Club today. And for just $5 with free shipping, you'll get the six-blade Executive Razor Plus trial sizes of shave butter, body cleanser, and Paul Krugman's column, which is also known as One Wipe Charlie's. Then keep the blades coming for a few bucks more a month. Get yours at dollarshaveclub.com slash dingo. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash dingo. So, someday I'll get good at doing these ads. It just, it's, it just doesn't come. Well, I, I noticed uh, John Patoritz yesterday in, in Glop had a very meta segue that I'm not sure worked, where he was talking about the importance of things being competent. And then he said something like, you know what else needs to be competent? My delivery of this ad, <laughs> which is it's some breaking the fourth, fourth wall, right? There. Yeah, I, I'm. I just it, it it really took me out of the glop experience. Oh, so uh, one other piece of punditizing. We also saw this week uh, the firing of Rex Tillerson by tweet, which is, as we all know, how Lincoln always did it. When he <laughs> got rid of a general, he just you know issue a tweet. No, I'm um, uh, I'm torn about all this. You know, I think it all matters. I think it's all important, but I can't get worked up about it because I think Pompeo will actually probably be a better secretary, better secretary of state. I think Rick- Rex Tillerson, who I had very high hopes for, was a disappointment. It remains to be seen how much of it was by his own hand and how much of it had to do with how he was sort of empowered to do things. But either way, he didn't rise to the occasion, and I'm, I'm sort of glad to see him go. But the way he was you know, defenestrated is just simply outrageous. And and it points to this thing that uh, a guy who knows Trump very well, who I talked to recently, you know, he made this case to me that Trump loves controversy, but he hates confrontation. And so what he likes to do is, and like in these kinds of situations, which has happened before, is if he announces the firing, he doesn't actually have to say you're fired face to face. He doesn't have to have the awkward conversation. It is a passive aggressive way to make the other person Sort of uh, to, to sort of take the sting out of all of it, but how, however he's however he thinks about it, I think it's grotesque and unseemly, and it points to why he's such a terrible boss. I mean, he treats people who sacrifice their time and effort and reputations to work for them, and then he announces that they're fired by tweet. Um, I think it's grotesque um, and shameful. But um, I know I'm sort of alone on this because everybody, you know, so many people have become inured to the idea that running a presidency like a reality show is just fine. But, you know, put yourself in Rex Tillerson's shoes. Uh, put yourself, you know, whatever you think about Jim Comey and all that, and I think he is ample target for criticism and, uh, and you know, and even anger from lots of corners, not just from the right, but also from the left. Um, um, although I'm not sort of in the kill Comey camp on either side of this question. But, you know, when Trump fired him, he didn't even want to let him used the FBI plane to fly home, and it was announced on TV because of a tweet. At the minimum, that's just simply unprofessional. But I also think, and you know, lots of people pointed this out, this has been in the works for a very long time. Uh, Trump gets along with Pompeo. Pompeo knows how to communicate with Trump. My own theory, having, to, having the benefit of some conversations with people who follow stuff far, far more closely than I do, is that whatever precipitated the form of the firing, you know, in terms of the tweet and the jackassery around it, the this was a long time in coming. And the reason for it was um, it has to do with North Korea in the sense that Tillerson was very soft on the Paris Accord, very soft on the 
Iran deal and um, wasn't on the same page about a lot of these things, always wanted to do talks. Ironically, he was the guy who wanted to engage with the North Koreans, and that's what Trump is now doing. And when Tillerson wanted to do it, Trump said he was waste- Tillerson was wasting his time, but whatever. Tillerson sort of represented the wing or the faction of the White House that was in favor of engagement and diplomacy and, and working within proper globalist channels and all the rest. And the thinking is from the people I've talked to is that getting rid of Tillerson before we go into these negotiations with North Korea is a way to signal that we're not going to get rolled, right? If we're willing to pull out of the Iran deal, that means we're willing to sort of walk away from the table with North Korea as well. I think that makes sense on paper. I think that probably makes sense in how McMaster was thinking about it and how how Pompeo was thinking about it. Um, my hunch still is is that we're going to get rolled when we actually go there um, for the same reasons that, you know, Donald Trump t- says, you know, gives away the store on guns and, and on immigration when he gets in a meeting with, with Democrats. Uh, I don't think that we're going to – let me put it this way. We're not going to get North Korea to denuclearize. There's no chance of that in my mind. Um, and I don't really have a problem with talking to them as long as we can take, you know, you know, no for an answer. But uh, the real sort of takeaway from this is in terms of palace intrigue is that this leaves General Mattis alone. Everyone has been talking, you know, a lot of sort of the glib punditry about all of this is that there's this troika of generals, you know, Kelly and Mattis and, and, and McMaster. And the truth is, is that they don't all get along and that the real alliance was between Mattis and Tillerson. And there was a lot of talk, and I've heard this from a lot of people who have reason to know, that at least for a while there really was a suicide pact that Mattis basically said, if you fire Tillerson, you got to fire me too. Clearly that's not operative right now, and one can only speculate as to whether it was all it was never true or whether or not they basically think that they still need to have, Mattis still needs to be in there. But those guys don't really like McMaster. And I think in the long run that this – and in the long run, this probably signals that McMaster is not around for a very long time, um, in part just simply because I think Trump is growing ever more confident as president of the United States. He feels comfortable being president. He thinks he knows he knows how to do the job. And he wants to surround himself with people who he's comfortable being with. And as a president, that's his prerogative. But um, an overconfident – President Donald Trump is not necessarily something that everyone should should hope for, but I'll just leave that there. Last thing of this week was the Intel Committee coming out, quote unquote, clearing Donald Trump of any conclusion. Um, I don't think anybody thought that the House Intel Committee was going to come to any other conclusion. A lot of their stuff was perfectly legitimate and fine. I got into a bit of a fight with uh, my friend Molly Hemingway on Special Report this week. Um, about all of this because, look, I love Molly. I've known Molly for a long time. But Molly seems to operate from this assumption that um, anybody who doesn't like Trump or is a quote-unquote never-Trumper, a term that she uses um, in the most Catholic sense possible, automatically has subscribed to this, what she calls the conspiracy theory about Trump and collusion with Russia. And the simple fact is, is I never have written many times. I'm very skeptical about all this stuff. And my point was is that what the committee released was fine. It was, but it was basically the Washington consensus about things that Russia did meddle in the election, um, that it's continually to have active measures. The only place where they broke with the intelligence community was on the question of whether or not Russia wanted Trump to win, 
And I think the answer is that the intelligence community is right and the Nunes committee is wrong um, in the sense that I think the Russians just wanted to mess with America. They hated Hillary um, for sure and they wanted to mess with her, but they also thought Hillary was going to win, so they wanted to damage her as much as possible. And then when it looked like, oh my gosh, Trump could actually win, they invested a lot in Trump because they thought Trump would be better as a disruptive factor in our politics. That doesn't mean collusion necessarily. It just means that you know, if 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 Vladimir Putin had a preference because he hated Hillary, he would rather Trump because he thought Trump was the kind of guy he could work with, in part because Trump refused to ever criticize Putin on the campaign trail. And so I just don't care very much about the this Intel report. I think it's fine. I think it's not it wasn't a great investigation. You know, anytime one of the administration witnesses refused to testify. They didn't try to compel their testimony, which I think is sort of ridiculous if you're going to claim to be having a thorough investigation. I'll leave what I think about the, the, the FISA and the unmasking stuff for people who listen to the podcast I did with Andy McCarthy. But uh, the one thing I think is really sort of interesting here is no one knows what Mueller has. No one knows what Mueller could find. Uh, and And to a certain extent, no one knows what the Senate Intelligence Committee, which has worked on a more bipartisan basis, will find. And I kind of think that coming out of the block being as declarative as they are is a bit of a Hail Mary for the Nunes Committee, for the simple for the Republicans in the House, for the simple reason that it's entirely possible that, you know, Mueller comes up with some stuff that makes the findings of the House Committee look foolish. And I don't necessarily mean that we're going to find out that Donald Trump was you know, hatching schemes in a dacha with Putin over shots of vodka or anything. But, you know, Manafort's going to jail. You know, it's one of the few things we really know. And Roger Stone's probably going to jail um, or flipping. I think Jared Kushner's in a lot of trouble. And uh, and I think Kushner might have done things with Russians. I don't know. But just to sort of be out there as sort of exonerating the Trump campaign on all of these things without knowing what other shoes could drop from Mueller or the Senate is a bit risky. But as it is, I don't have any real huge problem with it. I just don't think it's a really big deal. I think everybody knew the moment that the committee issued this thing that Trump would tweet in all caps, because, you know, if it's in all caps, it has to be true, that he was completely exonerated from collusion. And uh, are there any other punditry things that you want me to talk about or that I should talk about? Uh... I know we've gone long and you hate long podcasts. (laughs) Uh, well, I mean, this is, there's a lot of, there's always news. Yeah, I know. You could, you could theoretically just keep turning the punditry wheel of pain forever until you, uh, had sufficient muscles to take revenge on your captors. But, uh, I can't think of anything else. I feel like this has been pretty exhaustive. Oh, just as a correction, when Conan is freed from his captors, he doesn't take revenge on them. He is bought out of slavery to be trained as a warrior. Oh yeah, he takes revenge on the person who killed his mother. Tulsa Doom. Yeah, well, that's fair, right? Yes. <laughs> that's not... Um, all right, so uh, in terms of various and sundry stuff, are you watching, reading, listening to anything interesting? Oh, I just... And this is not exactly like a new thing, but I just read the Michael Crichton book, Timeline, just as a di- as a diversionary thing. It was, it was very Crichton, very yeah. sort of predictable, but very readable and entertaining, and yeah. there was time travel and medieval nights and violence, so... Well, I just talked about this on uh, – I, I mentioned this on the last podcast. I'm still working my way through The Expanse, um, which I still like. I think it's it, – it eludes my immediate it, – it eludes all of my sort of 
well-developed skills of predicting where it's going to go, which I kind of like. Um, but um, I don't have any other pressing pop culture things to bring up. Oh, in exciting news, I recorded, which will air around the publication date of the book, uh, which is April 24, I recorded a podcast with Russ Roberts of Econ Talk. And I loved it. I loved being on it. You know, it's one of my favorite podcasts. It's not my favorite podcast. Um, and I mean, although there are, there are episodes that I cannot get through because it's just, it's data storms, but I love the philosophy stuff on there. I love the economic stuff on there. And it was, and, and Russ has agreed to come on this podcast, which is very exciting. And it'll be fun to sort of turn the tables on, on Roberts a little bit. And, um, what else is going on? Um, we just had a our AI's big uh, conference in Sea Island, Georgia, called World Forum, but it's entirely off the record, so I'm not allowed to say anything. But I will say that I gave my first comprehensive talk about the book, and it went pretty well. I feel and, like you're gonna get just pierced by a a, a dart with uh, a sedative at any moment. For yeah, no, that, that's as much as I'm willing World to Forum. disclose about what happened at World Forum because it is the most off the record thing ever, which it's, which Bill Crystal learned a few years ago. <laughs> oh, and. Uh, everyone seems to love the conversation we had with uh, Christine Rosen, but it's funny. I asked this question about post-millennialism versus pre-millennialism, right, in Protestant thinking and in, in the social gospel. And for some reason, Christine just didn't want to engage in a lot of that stuff, and she made me explain what these things are. And uh, it, it's funny. I mean, it's sort of like – it was like a Nightingale song where all of a sudden it activated all sorts of people who listened to the podcast to reach out to me <laughs> about either how I wasn't being fair to the two concepts or or that, you know, that they would be happy to explain it to me. And so our friend of the, this podcast and a friend of National Review, David Bonson, said, you know, he wanted to talk to me for a couple minutes um, this week. And we ended up doing the couple minutes of like work stuff and then spent about an hour on – post-millennial versus pre-millennialism and i think we're going to have him on so we can talk about it more the only thing i needed to explain to him is that i have no invidious attitude towards either theological doctrine or approach exegetical doctrine whatever i come to it from a guy who like waded deep into progressivism and eugenics when i was writing my first book and uh this distinction was a big deal among the social gospel progressives um it wasn't necessarily a big deal to me and I just have always wanted to sort of get back to sort of understanding it better and I was hoping that Christine would take the bait but she didn't want to and so um, you know we're going to have to get somebody else in here to um, geek out on the issue uh, and that's basically all I got I'm going to be on Meet the Press this Sunday with Chuck Todd my first appearance there which will mean that I've been on every Sunday show except Fox News Sunday <laughs> which is kind of weird because I'm a contributor there but I think I'm scheduled to be on uh, FNS later um next month or this month so that's great too and uh until the friday podcast thanks everybody for listening please follow us on twitter at jonah remnant on twitter or the remnant pod at gmail.com i'm so proud of you yeah i got it congratulations thank you thank you thank you please leave reviews please subscribe and to everybody who's pre-ordered the book the suicide of the west thank you so much um it really means a lot to me it's the one of the only ways to truly monetize all this stuff that I do for free for you people. Um, and <laughs> I'm not bitter. I'm not bitter at all. Um, but it, it's yeah, I really appreciate it. So thank you all very much. And uh, tune in uh, again in a couple of days. <laughs>